This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, welcome to part one of our interview with Dr. Stephen Clasco, President and CEO of Philadelphia-based Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. Dr. Clasco was recently named by the World Economic Forum as a Distinguished Fellow for the Digital Economy and New Value Creation. Most recently, he was ranked number six in modern healthcare's top 50 most influential clinical executives. And for the last three years, he has been listed in modern healthcare's top 100 most influential people in healthcare. Dr. Clasco was the only healthcare executive listed in Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business. And in 2018 was awarded Philadelphia Entrepreneur of the Year. Dr. Clasco is an obstetrician who has been the dean of two medical schools, and he currently leads one of the nation's fastest growing academic health institutions. And his tenure at Jefferson has been defined by his vision for reimagining the future. Dr. Clasco is nothing less than a healthcare revolutionary. And it is a bit ironic, Daniel, that I think he's the leader of a healthcare system whose namesake was an American revolutionary and one of the founding fathers, President Thomas Jefferson. Eric, I completely agree. I have to think that President Jefferson would have approved of the legacy that Clasco is creating. And speaking of this vision for reimagining the future, in reading his book and speaking with him today, I'm reminded of one of the leadership principles that we've researched and written about in our ACLC white paper on leadership, which is that an effective leader creates and communicates a clear vision of the future. There's no doubt that he's done that. He sold me on his vision. I'm all in. I believe that this is the future of healthcare and will be required if we are to win this race to value. Dr. Clasco, thank you for joining us today on Race to Value. We are excited to talk about your new book, Unhealthcare, A Manifesto for Health Assurance, a book that you co-authored with Hamant Tanasia, a venture capitalist that advocates for bringing consumerism, affordability, and rational economic behavior to the healthcare sector. This book is truly a manifesto as you have made a very public declaration to usher in a new age of digital mobile consumerism in the healthcare industry. 
as you describe it, this concept of health assurance has the potential to be an absolute game changer for our industry as it would force a redesign of the system to help us need as little healthcare as possible. By having a consumer-centric, data-driven, cloud-based healthcare system that is designed to help us stay well, we're going to need as little sick care as possible. Your manifesto describes this new system of health assurance built on the principles of open technology standards, empathetic user design, and responsible AI that could only come about through creative partnership between professionals and traditional healthcare and technology companies. And as these two worlds of healthcare and technology innovation emerge, we would transform our fragmented, expensive, and inequitable healthcare system. So Dr. Clasco, in your manifesto, you describe a future where health assurance would give birth to 10 to $1,500 billion plus companies. That's going to in turn shrink healthcare spending and our economy would be able to recapture the $3 trillion plus dollars that we currently spend on healthcare. And that's pretty cool stuff. And we're going to spend considerable time today talking about this future. But before we do that, I wanted to first ask you to walk our listeners through some of your past experiences that led to you writing this manifesto. Can you describe what you learned from Steve Jobs and how he framed your thinking towards the future of healthcare and this technological revolution? Also, can you tell us about your co-author, Hamant Tanasia, and what is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a CEO of a 195-year-old academic medical center have in common? Well, thanks, and it's really a pleasure to be talking to you. I have a sort of unusual background for a CEO of a 195-year-old academic medical center. And I've done a couple of startup companies. I'm a high-risk obstetrician uh, with the Wharton MBA, and, and I've been the dean of a few different medical schools. But I, I, I think what defined my latter career is the recognition that healthcare has not only escaped the consumer revolution, we really lost touch with what patients really need and what they've been able to get in other areas of their world. So I had, as part of that, back pre-iPhone era, I had an opportunity to work with uh, Apple on, uh, on their iTunes U health platform and got to see Steve in action. And, and just if you think about Apple pre-iPhone, that was probably about 72 splits ago. Uh, Apple stock was $15. And they had, what did they have? They had computers and operating systems. And management was saying, I think we can go from 3 to 4% of computers and you know 4 to 5% of operating systems. And Steve talked about the old math and the new math. And Steve, Steve said, look, the old math is computers and operating systems. The new math is this thing called digital lifestyle where people will be able to do things at home. And you can imagine that wasn't a very popular thing because everybody was running the old math and that was their only math at that time. And what was really fascinating to me, and one of my mentors is John Scully, who, who was the CEO, got brought in from Pepsi to help help Steve sort of you know, be a, a publicly traded company. Uh, John, at, at our commencement speech last year, talked about Steve basically going to Steve and saying, you know, you really need to do like a three-year strategic and business plan. And he showed him Pepsis and it's lots of spreadsheets and McKinsey and Accenture. And Steve came back about a day later and said, here's my three-year strategic and business plan. And, and it was on a whiteboard, said year one, we change, year two, we change the industry, year three, we change the world. If you really think about that, he actually accomplished that. Year one was when he came out with the iPod and people said, what the heck is this? Something holding 200 MP3s that has nothing to do with music or MP3s. It's, it's the new iRevolution. And people thought he was nuts. The stock went down. Year two was things like the iPad and, and, and other things that started to create that digital lifestyle. And that probably changed the industry. Everybody was now all of a sudden catching up with Apple. And year three was the iPhone, which anybody could argue really changed the world. 
So that's what I did. That's what I started to look at in healthcare with Jefferson. Our old math is our university and our health system, which is about $5 billion. Just like with Steve, that's our only math or had been our only math till recently. The new math was innovation and strategic partnerships. And just to put that in perspective, at the same time that everything in in-person tuition and heads and beds mentality of, um, of hospitals is, is decreasing financially and will actually be losers. You know, we brought in, you know, just with a couple different ventures, probably $50 million or so this year in strategic partnerships, just really on things that we cashed out of this year. So the Haymont story is really sort of interesting. And, and the best way to look at the book is we start out with, um, so what if a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a CEO of a 195-year-old academic medical center walked into a bar, got married, and virtually had babies? What would they look like? And in some respects, that's how we met. Uh, Haymont had just written a book called Unscaled. He had been the initial investor in Airbnb, Warby Parker, and Stripe. And if you think about how those changed hotels, finance, and the way we buy glasses, all of that was around 20th century principles of mass production and economies of scale are now sort of giving way to mass personalization and rentable scale. And needless to say, he did very well with that. And uh, everybody said, when he said, you know, I really, I, I have both an altruistic and capitalistic need to get into healthcare. Everybody said what everybody always says about healthcare. Oh, you can't get into healthcare. It's too complicated. Well, you know, he was the initial investor of Livongo and now several other companies. Story is after five or six years, Livongo just got sold to Teladoc for $18.4 billion. And what's amazing about Livongo, it doesn't really make a product. It just treats people with diabetes, not as patients like we do, as, but as people that want to be able to thrive without diabetes getting in the way. And that became an $18.4 billion company. And the concept of unhealthcare, simply put, is that, that just like with unscaled, costly sick care will give way to affordable, personalized, and preemptive care with genomic sensors, AI-based digital therapies. And that's going to be the true revolution in healthcare. And the reason that we called it a manifesto and the reason we called it health assurance is really two things. One is we think there's an urgency and you read the book and anybody that gets the book, it's real easy to read. It's not a whole lot of pages. It's a manifesto. We were going to call it common sense, uh, but I think Thomas Paine had that sort of already locked up. So, and the health assurance is a little bit of a satire on the ridiculousness that exists today with health insurance, where, you know, we've got this totally fragmented, expensive, inequitable thing where healthcare providers are trying to do as much as they can in their most expensive places. Health insurers are there to get 17 cents on the dollar to make sure the people that pay for the care, get the care and provide the care can't talk to each other. Pharma is trying to, you know, get the most they can for pharma. And what's being left out of the equation is in essence the patient. And I'll just sort of, I'll stop this part with this, that, that it's frustrating as heck to me throughout, you know, a presidential cycle to listen to only people talking about how we pay for this expensive, fragmented, inequitable healthcare system, not how we fundamentally disrupt and transform the healthcare system, which is what we'll really need to do. Dr. Classical, I love hearing you describe the story of health assurance and your inspiration from Steve Jobs. I'm so encouraged by the prospects of real change coming as tech entrepreneurs and the traditional healthcare ecosystem as they work together instead of against each other. 
In your book, you describe how we're in this iPhone moment in healthcare. So taking that iPhone story and applying it to healthcare, where the COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on the lack of resilience in healthcare and really how technology can fix this issue. Like you describe in the introduction of Apple's iPhone, there's a whole new universe of possibilities to open up. And you envision a future where health assurance ascends and displaces parts of the old system, where it took something like COVID-19 to catalyze a digital mobile consumerism into healthcare mainstream. In addition to tech-enabled benefits of the healthcare experience, you also describe how health assurance will give the world knowledge and data so that we have a better chance of containing or defeating future contagions. For example, if tens of millions of people all over the world had been using health assurance services by January 2020, we could have stopped COVID at the onset by spotting the outbreak early or seeing clusters develop so we could take actions to minimize that impact. Can you elaborate on how you see COVID serving as a flashpoint for revolutionary change and moving us toward health assurance? Also, how has Jefferson moved towards health assurance by ramping up telemedicine over the last few months? Yeah, so that's a great question. Let me let me try it this way. Uh, let me tell you about the, the pandemic of October 14th, 2030, okay? So, you know, there's this mutant strain of an RNA encapsulated virus that started afflicting people in Australia. You know, people old enough to remember, especially healthcare workers, those dark days 10 years ago of early 2020, and the COVID-19 crisis immediately panicked. But in this case, it was like for a second. And then they smiled because... In essence, healthcare had evolved from this broken, fragmented, and expensive and inequitable sick care system to the health assurance system where most of their care happens at home. So let me just explain what that looks like. Since most of your healthcare data is now continuously streamed to the cloud and, and AI bots are constantly analyzing them for any changes, unlike 2020, the early symptoms of this new virus were immediately identified and anyone throughout the world who exhibited those early symptoms were notified and asked to socially isolate it. By the way, your employer was probably notified and asked for an excused absence. We had software that was immediately sent to your internet of things through, through your home 3D printer to begin to create masks that were customized for you and your family. And while there were a lot of panic attacks and some of us older people remembering the COVID-19 crisis of 2020, we could immediately communicate with our bot psychiatrist and if necessary, could immediately receive drone delivered treatment. There weren't any lines or concerns about food supply or, or shortages for the same reasons. Humans aren't the dependent variable with, you know, the fourth industrial revolution of drones and AI and Internet of Things and robotics have modified the supply chain. And we don't congregate in crowded grocery stores or even hoard toilet paper. So in, in this 2030 scenario, the whole scale was over within a month, partly because new bioprocessing techniques were able to identify, develop and test vaccines through rapid prototyping. Oh, and by the way, instruction for K-12 students continued seamlessly as the United States had finally reached broadband in 100% of households by 2025. And just as healthcare at home was mainstream, so were creative ways of teaching in a variety of venues. So by the way, all that technology, while not coordinated in that way, is starting to exist in 2020, and it shouldn't take till 2030 for, for that to happen. So let me just frame it, and maybe it's almost better than iPhone moment to talk about the Amazon moment, because I think in some respects, what, what amazes me about healthcare, we still look at a hospital across the street as our competitor, and Jefferson Penn is my competitor. And I, I like to almost compare that to when Amazon came in, having Sears go, boy, as long as I can be pennies, I'm fine. I don't have to worry about these new 
Amazons and Walmarts. That's just a fad. Penn is not my competitor in the future. My competitor is going to be the outsiders that are able to bring healthcare to home. And if I can do that, then, then Jefferson will be successful. So we invested in telehealth in 2013. We became one of the largest self-run telehealth uh, entities called Jeff Connect. We had almost unlimited supply and very little demand. So to put this in perspective, we did 100,000 telehealth visits between 2015 and December 31st of 2019. We did 100,000 telehealth visits from January 1st, 2020 to April 1st, 2020. So literally the ability to, to get care out in a very different way in some respects, the pandemic accelerated that, but in essence, that should have happened well before that. So when I say it's, it's the Amazon moment, I think what I'd say is this, or the iPhone moment. If, if as a healthcare provider, I think I'm gonna be able to survive by having people come to my expensive, inefficient emergency room or hospital as my chief source of revenue, or as my, the two campus university I run, that people will continue to pay $60,000 and more to get a business degree at Jefferson. I think that model is literally dead and I will be losing money. By the way, I think if insurers believe that they can you know, keep what they're doing, get 17 cents on the dollar through medical loss ratios of just separating out patient provider and employer, I think that's a dead model. I think you know, pharma's dead model is, I'm just gonna keep charging more and more uh, ridiculous prices and get retail from CMS, and that's my model. So just as uh, Amazon or the iPhone disrupted everything else we do, I do think we have to think differently. So I, I think, let's talk about the whole fourth industrial revolution of AI, and Jefferson's getting way into, into those things. The best way to look at it, and it's well brought out in the book, we have a 1980s mentality of how we deal with patients. I, I'm, I'm going for a physical on October 21st. My doctor is going to say, Steve, your blood pressure is X, your pulse is Y, your EKG is Z, you know, maybe get a couple tests and say, okay, based on October 21st of 2020, here's what you should do for the next year or year and a half. Well, that's crazy. Right? I mean, there's nothing else in your life that you do like that. My car gets better care than that. My car is sending continuous signals out into the cloud while it's in the garage. And when I wake up in the morning and I start my car, it says, in essence, Steve, look, while you were sleeping, my right front passenger tire got a little low. Do you mind filling me up before you get your coffee? Not quite like that yet, but it does give me that warning that it was sending that signal out. Well, that's exactly what will happen in healthcare. You will have a wearable. One of the things we invested in this year that we co-developed from our design university is a wearable that we'll go to sleep with and it will constantly send signals of your heart rate. Do you have any skips, any, any premature ventricular contractions? Is your respiratory rate labored? And it'll be unnoticed just as my car is until something goes wrong. So it's not like somebody's gonna be like an operator sitting there looking at, 100,000 people's data coming in. But if I had three PVCs in an hour, I would get woken up and an, and an ambulance would, would come over and, and pick me up. You think about people that die in their sleep with atrial fibrillation, that kind of thing, that will go away. So the issue of, of both a physical, a one-time physical, and frankly, the role of the human in the middle, it's again, asinine that we have well-trained human doctors that spend for that once a year visit that I have, 
you know, 20 of the 30 minutes just getting data. And just think about how ridiculous that is when, when you can look at it differently. The second thing I think that will change dramatically for a place like Jefferson is, we talk about everything in this sick care model as things like cost, access, patient experience, quality in the hospital. I think the patient diamond of healthcare will be, how do I be able to thrive without health getting in the way? How do I have human experiences when I need it? How can you make it really easy for me to do things in healthcare, which is the opposite of this now? And how the transparency, so I know what it'll cost and, and I know what the outcomes will be. I can compare you with other places. Almost the opposite of what exists today. So the magic for me and the secret sauce for me at Jefferson is I want to get to people while they're people and not patients. Because 95% of people in Philadelphia do not wake up in the morning and say, I'm a patient. They say, I'm a person. And by the way, even if they have a chronic disease, they say, I'm a person that happens to have a chronic disease. If I can get them to understand how Jeff can help them to thrive without health getting in the way before they become a patient, then literally when they become a patient, if God forbid they, they think they have a cancer or whatever, they're not gonna go up and down the expressway to see if, you know, who has the coolest billboard about cancer or look at stupid 30 second commercials on Morning Joe about my cancer center and people coming in and leaving happy. Those are just ridiculous wastes of money. They're gonna say, well, wait, I, you know, Jefferson's helped me you know, lose weight or Jefferson's helped me stay healthy and now I've got this problem. I'm gonna press the app and get on JeffConnect. And the last thing I'd say is getting back to the just ridiculous absurdity of how we do marketing which is sort of mailing it in with these, you know, like I said, stupid billboards or stupid commercials, is we have to do what every other sector has done in consumer segment, right? I mean, I always laugh when I, when I go to almost any city and I see some hospital. We are the patient-centered hospital. Well, I don't know what that means. Are you, does that mean you're patient-centered for a 28-year-old disengaged person? Or for somebody like me who's a 66-year-old guy with an aura ring and an, and an Apple watch? or for a 72 year old person that's not on the internet and has cancer, which one are you patient centered for? So one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on at Jefferson is thinking about that consumer segmentation model. And getting back to the Amazon moment or iPhone moment, Amazon divides us into about 12,000 types, <laughs> probably a lot more than that at this point, and interacts with me in a very, very, very different way than they interact with you. We don't do that. We assume that every patient is homogenous. And then the last thing is, the thing that will really turn things around is when patients have that, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore moment. And I'll, I'll give you an example. But, you know, one of the things that has to happen now that I'm mad as hell, not going to take it anymore moment, is to have some alternatives. And we haven't in the past offered that. So I'm an obstetrician. And again, ridiculously, you know, my daughter today, my daughter's pregnant today, she was told that she needs to get monitored because she has some high blood pressure. So they said, you know, it's our hospital, but it's, you know, go to the hospital, pay $35 to park, go to the place where there's a lot of sick people, get on an elevator. We're going to stick a monitor on you for a couple hours and some nurse will tell you you're okay. That's the only alternative that exists today. So whether you went to, you know, Penn, Jefferson, Mass General or, or Cleveland Clinic, pretty much that's what would happen. So people might say that seems got, you know, it seems a little, why am I going to a hospital for that? Well, there weren't alternatives. Now, through the fourth industrial revolution, there are companies, I'm on the board of one, that's actually creating opportunities where people can get that monitoring at home. So where, where the Amazon moment will change things is when those things become very available 
Then my daughter will say, well, wait, let me get this straight. You want me to come to the hospital? There's a lot of sick people and have somebody slap a monitor on me. When I could be at home watching little fires everywhere, drinking lemonade and having somebody come on my iPad screen and tell me I'm okay. That's when I think the real revolution will happen. And the places that don't get that, think Sears and Pennies, will become extinct. Dr. Klaska, you've done a great job in explaining how there's never been a greater need for technology-enabled healthcare. And this viewpoint has been resoundingly affirmed by the digital health investor community so far this year. Despite the U.S. officially entering a recession in February and the spread of COVID-19 affecting global supply chains, consumer sentiment, in public and private markets, U.S. digital venture funding is on track to set annual records for overall funding, number of deals, and average deal size. In fact, the first half of 2020 saw more funding than any previous first half of the year, ending at a record $5.4 billion, beating the prior record of $4.2 billion set in January through June of 2019. And Livongo stands out as one of the biggest success stories of the early crop of health assurance companies and has benefited tremendously from the COVID-19 pandemic this year. The company's digital health platform, which, as you mentioned earlier, helps patients manage chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension, it's really taken off. There's been an increased need for remote health monitoring and personalized health care. And Livongo is perfectly positioned to be at the right place at the right time. Since the company's initial public offering last summer, their stock has gone up 500%. So I wanted to ask you about your take on how new and emerging startups can become dominant forces in our market economy. How can these companies compete in an economy that's dominated by FANG Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, which combined has a $4 trillion market cap. Since most of the technorati have failed when it comes to reinventing healthcare, what makes these health assurance startups different? Well, you know, you know, I, I can't speak to every health assurance startup because they're all very different. I, I can talk about FANG. And the issue around FANG is, you know, that in some respects, people have lost trust in those big, big, big companies. They've really just recognized that, that they absolutely can't trust Google or Amazon or Facebook basically to, to keep their data even private. So when it, comes to, when it comes to healthcare, they haven't been willing to share their data at that level. And the best example, by the way, you look at Haven. Haven was Amazon, JP Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway, right? And they were going to revolutionize healthcare. And I remember when that first happened and I was giving a talk nationally, people were going to me and saying, um, well, aren't you afraid of Haven? They're going to take over healthcare. They've got, you know, as you said, billions and billions and billions of dollars to spend. They can do whatever they want. And I said at that time, well, to me, Haven is a little bit like the Loch Ness Monster. I'd probably be scared of it if I saw it. I don't think I'll really see it in my lifetime. And part of that is because patients haven't been willing to sort of give it all up to, to those folks. Now, who do they trust? They trust their doctor. They, in most cases, trust the system that their doctor is in. So again, for Jefferson, and what I think the secret sauce is, is two things for startup companies. One is, in healthcare, it's not about moving fast and breaking things. And I think, you know, if you read the book, you'll hear Haymont say, hey, we've made as many mistakes as the traditional healthcare ecosystem has done. And if all we do is say, we're going to go in and chip off at, at, at people that, that aren't going to go to the traditional healthcare ecosystem, we're not going to succeed. So starting November 2nd, 
we'll actually be working with General Catalyst. We're moving our entire digital innovation and consumer experience team in a partnership with General Catalyst. And starting last month, that representative from General Catalyst is, on, is actually on my cabinet, is on my senior cabinet. So think about what that means. That means that they're gonna have access to a 14 hospital system and the problems that we have and the things that digital transformation can really accelerate. That's a wow for General Catalyst. Think about what I have. I now have on my cabinet, the power of a you know, several billion dollar VC with you know, hundreds of engineers and computer science people in, in California, Boston and Philadelphia, helping me to solve my problems. So I think one of the issues is the future for the traditional healthcare ecosystem is gonna be creative and strategic partnerships. The future for VCs is to try to not have one-offs. I mean, the whole vendor-vendee relationship of I'm gonna to go to HIMSS, there's gonna be 890 exhibitors that are gonna tell me how they're transforming healthcare and I gotta choose between them. I think just like my model of heads and beds is, is an antiquated model. And I think the other thing that the VCs are gonna to have to recognize and not with everybody that they sell to, but some of the people, especially the larger systems, they're gonna to have to do real partnerships with as opposed to uh, just vendor vendee relationships with. I had my moment where this was a little earlier in my career when I was at University of South Florida as a CEO and there was a company that we helped create and actually that we were their first customer, blah, blah, blah. It was, it was pretty successful. And about a year later, the CEO calls me and says, Steve, I really wanna take you out to dinner. I said, why? He said, well, we just had an IPO, you know, at about $800 million and we couldn't have done it without you and USF. And my first reaction was, well, that better be a hell of a dinner if you create an $800 million company. So, so I think what we've, we've tried to look at now is, you know, if I'm going to help co-develop something, I don't want to just be a customer. I want to be able to share in that risk and I want to be able to get some, whether it's sweat equity or stock or be able to participate in a very early round with that company if I really believe in it. And I think, you know, for, for systems like ours, that's going to be the Steve Jobs, you know, gosh, I don't think I can really ever get the kind of operating income I want to reinvest just by making computers and operating systems and competing with Windows and HP and Dell. That's going to be my moment of, I think I'm sort of doomed to a 1% operating margin if all I'm doing is getting people into my hospital and having people come for in-person tuition that I can really make that up in sharing in the, you mentioned billions, I'm gonna say trillions of dollars of, uh, that will be spent on digital transformation in healthcare. Dr. Klasko, I'm fascinated by the future that you're describing, that entrepreneurs, tech and, and health professionals have a blue sky opportunity ahead of them. I wanna take something you mentioned earlier about the internet and broadband and use it to highlight another challenge that I think we're gonna run into and that you describe in the book. So let's talk about the current state of American broadband access adoption. And it's a scenario that uh, really highlights disparate access and outcomes across populations, which currently according to the 2018 American Community Survey, 18 million or 15% of households do not have any form of broadband internet service. And compare that to the 99.6% of households with complete plumbing or the effective 100% of households with access to electricity. And a recent Becker's Hospital Review article features some of your predictions on healthcare delivery post-COVID-19. 
And one of these is that technology can close the gap between haves and have nots, but it must be applied strategically. In the same article, you're quoted saying that the digital revolution cannot simply make the wealthy healthier. So in your manifesto, you argue for a model of innovation that allows people who can afford premium services to have those premium services. And you suggest that this will ultimately improve the health of the low income and underserved populations as well. So in this future state of health assurance, how will those low income and underserved households be able to realize the benefits if they lack access to the mobile technologies to broadband internet and these new innovations that we're discussing? Can you explain your rationale for why people who can afford more should get more? And what do you say to those who are calling for a very different approach with a Medicare for all solution? I'm glad you asked that question. I really am because I was on uh, one of the cable news channels and I, I saw I'll start it out this way because I actually hadn't thought about it this way until it came out of my mouth and I'll put it the same way. I think one of the things that the pandemic has proven, we knew it before. By the way, everything about the pandemic we knew before. It's just that, that, that the inequities, you know, the fact that if you're African-American in a certain zip code in Philadelphia and you, you came into a hospital, you had a four times chance of dying. And if you were Caucasian and a different thing because of socioeconomic factors was not something we didn't know. It's not like, oh, wow, COVID really taught us that because we knew pre-COVID there was a 21-year difference in life expectancy in Philadelphia, you know, based on zip code. So we knew that before. We had had studies about it. And, and that's despite the fact that we have like five academic medical centers in Philadelphia. So what I said, and I believe that I think what the pandemic has proven is since you brought up Medicare for all, the pandemic has proven that Bernie Sanders was 100% right about the problem, that we have a sick care, hospital-driven, insurance-driven, pharma-driven, corporate-driven, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable healthcare system. The pandemic has proven that, that he gets an A for that. I think the pandemic has also proven <laughs> that his solution of let's get the federal government state to, states to work together to actually run healthcare is probably a huge mistake on the solutions. I give him an A for the problem identification and an F given how well the states and the federal government have cooperated on the pandemic on the solution. So um, here's, here's how I put it as it relates to social determinants. I could not be more frustrated even today with the presidential election and the, the confirmation hearings and the, the Supreme Court issues around the ACA of everybody congratulating themselves on the healthcare policy side for doing just such a horrible job. And 40 years ago, one of my mentors from Wharton wrote a book called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. Sound familiar? That was 40 years ago. And he was the first guy, his name was Bill Kissick, to talk about the iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. And if you remember your geometry, if you increase one angle, you have to decrease another. So his point was, if you're going to increase access to everybody, you either have to increase cost or decrease quality. If you're going to increase quality, you're either going to decrease access or increase cost. What he said is, unless you're willing to totally disrupt the system, oh, and by the way, disruption is going to be very painful. And what amazed me is that 40 years ago, he said, if anybody ever tells you they're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it's not going to be painful, they're not telling the truth. So think about the self-congratulatory last 12 years of health policy we've had in this country. President Obama said the Affordable Care Act will increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it won't be painful. Well, that can't be true. President Trump said that his plan will be fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, and really huge. And it was none of those four. 
And part of the issue is because nobody has had the courage to do anything other than say, how can we pay for a fragmented, expensive, and inequitable system and hope that the healthcare system would transform? And frankly, Medicare for all was just as bad, if not worse. It was three words that basically said, that'll solve the problem. Well, you know, the news I would give to Senator Sanders or Vice President Biden or President Trump or Vice President Pence or Senator McConnell is just as Haymont learned that healthcare isn't really that complicated and you can make $18.4 billion if you actually get healthcare out to where patients are, healthcare policy isn't that complicated. You just have to have courage. I mean, here, so here are the issues. Issue number one. When Senator Sanders says there is no country, civilized country in the world that doesn't give everybody access, the dot, dot, dot is there is no civilized country in the world that literally has something called insurers that get paid 17 cents on the dollar to be middlemen. And just think about this for one second. When the ACA said we're going to give everybody access and we're going to have to drive a dollar and a quarter of healthcare costs down to a dollar, the first stocks you would have sold would have been all your middleman stocks. Because when, when Amazon came or anybody else disrupted, the middleman is what got squeezed, right? When Kayak and Saber started, who went away? The airlines didn't go away. The hotels didn't go away. The travel agents went away. That's been true in everything. Well, that would have been a big mistake because United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, the Blues, all had their net operating profits increased by five to 10 times. Now, how can that be? How can the middleman expand? How can pharma companies do as well as they did as supply chain or even generic drug companies? So one thing is that we, ha we, we have to recognize that a disruption would mean doing something different with insurers, not necessarily having the, the government run it, but insurers would have to prove their value. And it's not 17 cents on the dollar to be the middleman. They have value around data collection, data interpretation, partnering with systems, et cetera. We have to not be the only country in the world that pays retail for pharma. I mean, that's just ridiculous. We have to deal with end of life issues. It's absolutely ridiculous that if there's a 95 year old patient that really should be in hospice and goes into acute renal failure, that the for-profit dialysis companies, the hospitals and the doctors make ridiculous amounts of money to elongate that life for six weeks in a hospital instead of sending them to, to hospice. We have to look at how we pay doctors. We're the only country in the world where, you know, orthopedists, dermatologists, neurosurgeons, while they might make more than, than primary care docs in other countries, not, not eight, 10, 12 times more. So it's, it's not like we don't know the disruptions. We, we just haven't been willing to do the disruption. So I think that's, that's the first thing that really has to change. The second thing is, and Haymont and I have been working on this a lot with the World Economic Forum and others, is we have to really look at the fourth industrial revolution. Again, when I talk about that, I'm talking about AI, drones, robotics, genomics, et cetera, and recognize, as you said, all the bad things that can happen. If you think about it, back in the industrial revolution, there were two alternatives when we started to look at cars, internal combustion engines that needed oil, and the second was more of a battery power type thing. We went with the internal combustion engine because we felt that at that time, that would be a cheaper alternative, but we didn't think about what an oil-based economy might do geopolitically or from a um, climate change point of view. More recently, with the social media revolution, when we looked at cute Mark Zuckerberg with the hoodie, and we said, boy, you know, what can go wrong? I'll be able to see my grandkids on Facebook. We didn't think about how Facebook could become a corporation and affect elections or spew hate. So we now have this fourth industrial revolution, which can be amazing in healthcare, but can also be really dark and dangerous. And you start to look at genomics, and literally what happens, and you asked about FANG, 
you know, there's no way that I would give Facebook, Amazon, Apple, or Google access to my genome or genomic data because I just would not feel comfortable they wouldn't sell it to my life insurance company or to anybody else. So, so I think the, the question is gonna be on, on this, as we think about a center for responsible innovation, how do we A, make sure that we're not codifying biases? We've already seen this with AI and policing. If we go to AI and say, could you look at my last 10,000 arrests and I want to keep the humans out of it. I want you to decide who to, who to question. Well, if the last 10,000 arrests, 8,000 of them have been people of color, young single people of color, what do you think the AI uh, algorithm is going to be? We already know that in some cases, doctors offer less pain medicine to women than men. So again, if, if, if that's the data that we feed in, even with AI, which can continuously learn. So we have to consciously overcome those biases. I think the, the last thing is social determinants of health have to stop being an academic enterprise. I'm so tired of hearing academicians, we have a college of population now, I'm so tired of listening to the fact that 80% of a person's healthcare, especially for the underserved, is where we put 10 or 20% of our money. So if we know that, and we're the next president of the United States, or the HHS, change it, change it. Go to Penn and Jefferson and Temple and say, we're not going to pay you based on, you know, fee for service, Blue Cross, we're not going to pay you. We're going to pay you based on how you're keeping your population healthy. I'm proud of Jefferson that our last three galas, you know, everybody has a gala health systems and it's usually, you know, getting lots of your donors to give money so I can get, get a bigger proton or a better proton than our competitor. Our last three galas have been for the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity. How can we really start to make those changes? But the real issue and the, and the final issue is to look at how we can start to really, really, really use that technology to give you those changes. So look, you've heard of food deserts. Now food deserts exist for a simple reason. Where I live in my zip code, where a baby born today that goes back to my zip code will live to 2106, I can walk to two or three Whole Foods, organic food stores, or Trader Joe's. In North Strawberry Mansion in Philadelphia, which is about six miles away, or a baby born today and goes back to that home, that baby might only live to, to 2090. The only place they can walk to is a bodega that sells non-diet sodas and, and chips. Okay, so that was the world that existed before. Just like the world that existed before in my obstetric world was, you know, my daughter can afford to go down to Jefferson and get monitored, but another person might not have the money to pay for a nanny to go down to get monitored to the hospital, so they might have a, a, a worse outcome. So let's look at food deserts. The fact is, enlightened healthcare policy would go and say, if you're on electronic food transfers, food stamps, whatever the state gives, and Mrs. Jones, since everything's barcoded, if you're willing to only use the government money to serve your family healthy food, we'll give you 50% more food stamps or electronic food transfers. And by the way, we'll, we'll drone deliver it or Instacart it, all of which exists today that didn't exist before. By the way, you did that, you wouldn't have food deserts anymore, right? I mean, if, if, if you're having drone deliveries, it doesn't matter what the zip code is. Frankly, even if you Instacart it or Amazon Fresh, it, it doesn't matter what, what the zip code is. So the simple fact is we could eliminate food deserts by doing that. And even from a healthcare policy point of view, long-term, it would be a huge money saver because we'd reduce the risk of childhood obesity and some of the other chronic diseases by a whole lot that are based on food deserts. 
Similarly, getting back to my obstetric examples, if we really, if we really implemented remote monitoring, because beyond the fact that it's more convenient, we spend three to four times more per pregnant patient than just about any country in the world. So you'd say, well, that's because we must have the best outcomes, right, Steve? And the answer would be no, wrong. Our outcomes in neonatal and, and maternal morbidity are somewhere between like Serbia and Croatia. Why is that? Again, people the haves can afford to come into the hospital. They, they have good insurance. They can get monitored. They can leave their job. They can hire a nanny. They can put gas in their car and get monitored. The have-nots have a job that if they had to do that three times a week, they wouldn't have a job or they can't afford a nanny or they can't afford gas in the car. So what do they do? They just don't get the testing. Now, again, the technology now exists to have that done at home or work. So you don't need to do that. The real issue, it's not that we can't do it. And it's not just having a company create remote monitoring. It's bringing together enlightened health policy, payment models that enforce that enlightened health policy and technology entrepreneurs that are willing to work with that. I'll leave you with a quote that, that I think is really important one. It's from Upton Sinclair and he wasn't talking about healthcare, but he said, it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. And that's been actually the hallmark of everything wrong about healthcare. I am incredibly incentivized to keep people alive for three or four weeks. I am incredibly incentivized to get people into the most expensive part of our, of our hospital. We started telehealth and we, we had a model, we can move 50% of our patients out of our expensive, inefficient ED. When I first did it, I would have gone bankrupt because the insurers are willing to pay me $1,500 for per patient. Somebody comes to my emergency department, but would only pay $89 or $99 for urgent care or telehealth or an appointment the next day, which was much better for the patient. So un until we can align some of those incentives, we're not gonna succeed. Once we align enlightened health policy, payment models, and entrepreneurs and, and traditional healthcare ecosystem working together, then I think we can really have the kind of healthcare system where we can really give access to everybody. Race to Value listeners, you have just heard the first half of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Clasco, President and CEO of Philadelphia-based Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health, who is one of the most influential people in healthcare and one of the top clinical executives in our country. Dr. Clasco is truly a healthcare revolutionary, reimagining the future of our industry. Come join us next week for part two of our conversation with Stephen Clasco. He will explore topics like consumerism and democratization of data, tech-enabled changes in workflow and moral injury to providers, as well as the future of hospitals, health insurance, and medical science. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we'll tune in for part two. With industry leaders like Stephen Clasco, we can win this race to value.